And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Eric Kittner, Managing Partner and Chairman of the Board at Moneta, with approximately $25 billion in assets under management. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, Adam, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited to join. So, Eric, I always like to begin. Can you tell us your story and how you got involved in the business? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about my, my background, my upbringing, which will help kind of sort out how I got into the business. But uh, I grew up, I'm in St. Louis now, but I grew up on the East Coast. I was born in Connecticut, but actually uh, raised in Philadelphia, right outside of Philadelphia, the suburbs, kind of the, uh, it's called Newtown Square, which is um, uh, kind of mainline area. But anyway, I spent uh, I spent my childhood growing up there. And I ended up going to school in D.C. at Catholic University and uh, was studying accounting at the time. And I met my to-be wife, and she is a a St. Louisan girl. So I ended up uh, moving to St. Louis a a couple years after we graduated. Um, Great part of the country. Uh, Love the Midwest. Actually, a great place to raise a family. But I ended up getting into into the financial planning world, investment advisory world, uh, coming out of accounting, uh, but but I think going back, my family is very entrepreneurial. My dad, um, you know, had some businesses uh, that he started and created. Uh, one in particular, the telemarketing business, back when market research was done via phone, um, and and was really a very entrepreneurial. Is a very entrepreneurial uh, individual, and that really caused me to want to own my own business at, at some point. I went into the accounting world because I thought that accounting would be a great background and, and really um, teach me how to how to run a business. I figured if I knew uh, where the dollars were, how to read a balance sheet, an income statement, that and cash flow, that would be a good background for running a business. When I went into when I graduated, I actually ended up at Arthur Anderson, one of the big five accounting firms right. at the time, and I spent a couple years there doing tax accounting work and. Uh, um, we had Enron, the Enron incident. Right. So Anderson went away. I actually worked for Ernst & Young for a couple of months, St. Louis, and found a local accounting firm, Ruben Brown, here in town that I worked at for about a year and a half. And when I moved, I had, frankly, had enough of the accounting world, but I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I went on a journey for about a year to try and figure out what it really was and, and really kind of stumbled across financial planning. Uh, my business partner at the time, who I joined, uh, Joe Sheehan, who I joined in the business, he actually lived in my mother-in-law's neighborhood, and uh, I got to know him via her, and we struck up a conversation. And what I really, really liked about uh, the opportunity was um, I could use my tax background. Uh, I love to provide service to clients, uh, but I wanted to be more proactive than kind of looking backwards at a tax return. And so discovered that financial planning was a great, great opportunity for me. And Mineta was a great place because of our structure. Uh, we're a very entrepreneurial firm. We have 47 partners and owners of the firm. And I could tie, you know, the service business and providing advice to clients with the ultimate goal of being entrepreneurial and, and a business owner. And the two of them blended together quite well at Mineta. And I've been here now 17 years and have loved every minute of it. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So, uh, a few questions. While you were at Arthur Anderson, were you actually involved with the Enron case, or you just happened to be? Uh, yeah. No, I was in our Tyson's Corner, Virginia office, which was one of our largest offices. Um, the only involvement I had uh, in the in the Enron was uh, issue or case was really marching on Capitol Hill to try and um, you know uh, talk the Department of Justice into 
uh, not making you know Anderson go away gotcha. altogether. Gotcha. Uh, but that was my only involvement. That and listening to our CEO messages right. uh, every day on the phone when we walked in and what was going on in the news with with the uh, with the case. With the scan, gotcha. So that's a very interesting background. So specifically, financial planning is your expertise. Just curious, what brought you into that world? Was it the, your partner at the time who lived with, in your mother-in-law's neighborhood, or was it some other affinity for financial planning? You know, when I really discovered what financial planning was, um, and, and this was back in 2002, 2003, so, you know, the CFP program and that, that are in, in universities now, um, they weren't as relevant. It wasn't as... as um, I think thought of a field as coming out of in the in from graduating from college. It just wasn't as as uh, prevalent as it is today with some really large programs and a lot of CFP candidate graduates. Um, but what I really found was I loved providing service to clients. I loved providing uh, advice to clients. Um, that was part of the aspect of the accounting days that I enjoyed. But but what we were doing was really backwards looking. It was all tax return compliance work. Uh, clients kind of felt obligated. They had to talk to their CPA to figure out what was going on. Um, but I really wanted to be more proactive. Uh, I had always been had interest in investing. Um, and, um, you know, what ultimately happened is when I discovered what we do here in, in helping clients achieve their financial goals and objectives, uh, it just felt like a natural fit. And I came on board and you know, a couple of years in, realized that this is absolutely the career for me. I just clicked. Yeah, that makes it's. I love it when that happens. So, can you tell us a little about your investment strategy and overall financial? How you view financial planning? Yeah. So, so our tagline at Manette is we are family CFO. So, just like a successful business has a chief financial officer to help them manage their financial affairs, that's really what we do for successful families. So we really come at the investment approach from a from a planning perspective. Uh, probably a bit easier if I explain our process, and then I'll get into kind of how we invest capital in our in our philosophy. But we really sit down with clients or prospects when they walk in and want to understand what it is they want to accomplish. You know, that could be retirement, that could be second homes, that can be educating children, that can be taking care of aging parents. Uh, that can be selling a business, any number of financial goals that our clients come in, uh, we will really want to understand what they are. And then what we do is we gather all their financial stuff, which is what we call the technical term for all their financial information, right. uh, you know, tax returns, estate documents, investment account statements, uh, insurance info, all that good stuff. And what we do is we put together a financial action plan. And that financial action plan is specifically designed to help our clients accomplish the goals and objectives that they have. It's unique for every one of our clients because each one of our clients is unique and has a unique set, unique set of goals and background and family. From there, as we think about investments, which is part of the plan, we really are um, asset allocators. Uh, we exercise really modern portfolio theory, which in simple terms is um, you know, sitting down with our clients, understanding their risk profile relative to the goals they have, and then filling the buckets in terms of the asset classes that are out there. So uh, from a big picture perspective, what we do is sit back and say, okay, one of the most important decisions that we can make as an investor is how much money to have in stocks versus how much money to have in safe investments like bonds and cash. That's the first conversation that we have with, with clients. And then from there, what we do is the money that we determine that's going to be invested in equities for long-term growth, 
Um, what we do is we uh, build a diversified portfolio, spread it across a variety of asset classes. Um, we are very disciplined in that approach. We're not tactical. We don't market time. We don't go out there and say we shouldn't own this, that, or the other thing because of the way we feel or this thesis that we have. We really spread capital across all the asset classes uh, and then rebalance uh, along the way. That makes perfect sense. So a few questions for you. When you set up a plan for somebody, you said investments is one piece of it. What are the other pieces? Yeah, so we really look at cash flow. We look at education. We look at retirement. We look at estate planning. We look at risk management. Uh, and what often happens is people come to us with, you know, pieces of the financial place, uh, financial plan in place, but they don't necessarily have one person coordinating. So maybe they have a great CPA. But the CPA is really backwards looking and doesn't have insight to all the moving parts and pieces of the client's financial picture and therefore isn't actually able to provide the best advice from a tax planning perspective. What we do is we put all the pieces together. We're the quarterback. And so we don't necessarily do it all, but we quarterback the situation. So, for example, clients that are making charitable gifts. Um, to institutions, and it, rather than a CPA just kind of recording that gift at the end of the time, at the end of the day when they're reporting their tax return or filing their tax return, we're proactively looking at the vehicle to use, um, the tax uh, impact that it has, the asset to donate to charity if we're looking at appreciated securities, not cash, and at the same time we're coordinating with the CPA to make sure that there's a cohesive strategy in place and we understand the impact from a tax perspective. And so we're looking at all those areas to make sure, again, that the plan that our clients have and the goals that they have, that, that everything we do is helping them accomplish those goals. Now, that makes perfect sense. And Eric, I noticed on your website, you guys have uh, institutional consulting services and you have an advisor login page. So you guys offer services to advisors as well, because a large part of the audience here are advisors as well, in addition to high net worth. It so, so from an institutional perspective, I'll step back. Um, the way we're designed in a little bit about Mineta is we are 47 partners that have decided that we love to provide financial advice to successful families. What we've done over the history of Mineta has, has built an infrastructure so that the advisors and partners can sit out there and provide the advice to our clients um, and what we've done is built an 85-person, what we call enterprise service team, who are the backbone in the infrastructure for the partners and advisors. So what they do is they provide um, HR, they provide recruiting. Um, we have um, business development training as part of our Mineta University, which we've built out. We've got investment, our investment team. We've got compliance. We've got all the assets of running the advisory business on our enterprise service team um, focused at providing service to our teams so that our teams can be sitting with clients in meetings uh, or these days virtual meetings, uh, providing advice and helping our clients achieve the goals and objectives that they have. We're, we continue to look to grow and, and attract partner teams to Mineta, the brand and the firm and the vision that we have in place. Um, and from an institutional perspective, what we found, the clients that we serve primarily started as individual families. And, and over time, what we discovered is individual families and business owners have a variety of needs. Um, and some of those are retirement plan business. So so business owner who, who needs a retirement plan, we're able to provide that service. 
families that are successful that have created foundations and endowments need help managing those, um, we can provide advice there. So it, our business has evolved over time as our clients' needs have grown. Minette has figured out solutions for those. Um, but from an advisor perspective, we, we're not a platform where you can kind of dial in and say, hey, can I get help with this? Um, that's not the way we're designed. We are designed as a partnership and looking for like-minded partners to continue to grow the business, but not necessarily a way for people to just kind of dial in and, and tap into some resources. And, uh, understood. So you mentioned risk in one of the, the outlets as far as outside, in addition to investment strategy, you said you do risk management. So that leads me up to my next question. How do you handle risk? And what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Yeah, so uh, from a risk perspective, we view risk in a lot of different ways, right? I think there's the the, first, the, the easiest one to look at is kind of portfolio risk, right? Which is, um, you know, how much, uh, I, I describe it as how much pain are you willing to endure in an investment liquid portfolio? And so we step back and say, okay, we're going to put the plan in place. Um, and part of that plan is determining what your asset allocation should look like based on not only your tolerance for pain in terms of, you know, market volatility, but also in terms of cash needs that you have uh, that relate to the goals and objectives that you have. So we step back and say, okay, we want to help clients identify how much risk uh, they're, you know, they should take or are willing to take, but, but put it in the perspective of the plan as a whole. So, for example, we'll have clients come in and say, well, I'm comfortable with, you know, 100% of my money, very few, but a significant proportion of my money in equities. And and our goal is to say, okay, based on the portfolio that you have, looking at some historic time periods, looking at the volatility, are you comfortable taking and looking at a portfolio where maybe you see a 25% decline in equity markets and for your portfolio that equates to X millions of dollars. Um, we help them identify the risk that they're comfortable with, but but also then the risk that they need to or don't need to take, right? So we have clients that come in that have been wildly successful, that are able to accomplish all their financial goals that they have, and we help them think through what level of risk do they want to take. Listen, they can sit there and they can have a majority of their money sitting aside on the sidelines of munis or in cash, um, but but they have decided that they want to take some level of risk because they want to grow the portfolio for the next generation or the generation after that. So we look at risk from a portfolio perspective with spending a lot of time identifying at their comfort level, but also tying it back to the financial plan and the goals that they have in place. And it is one of the most important, is the most important thing in in our opinion as to a successful investment policy is getting that asset mix right, getting the an understanding of what is the risk profile profile of our clients, where do they need to take risk, where do they not need to take risk. I think from a mistake perspective, what we see time and time again is people wanting to take more risk at exactly the wrong time and take less risk at exactly the wrong time. And, and you know, I think COVID is a, is a pretty good example. You know, it's, it's not uncommon that when equity markets are going up, people are more inclined to want to buy more stocks, right? They want to push the allocation up from maybe 50% equities to 60 or 70% equities because, you know what, the market's going up, why wouldn't you? 
And, um, you know, our approach is as we've determined what an asset allocation looks like and as that portfolio grows and 50%, if that's your target, grows to 60%, we're going to take that 10% of profit and, and rebalance the portfolio. We think that's really, really critical. Conversely, when markets are going down, people are okay or they want to reduce equity exposure, right? And, right. and we would tell you that's exactly the wrong time to do it. Uh, when we were dealing with the, um, you know, the early onset of COVID and we had a market that was cratering, we were reaching out to clients and saying, hey, we want to rebalance your portfolio. We want to go ahead and buy stocks and take advantage of the decline that we've seen. This isn't a prediction of what we know. We're not predicting, you know, the outcome of COVID. Um, but we know that long-term successful investors are disappointed to maintain their asset allocation. So one of the biggest mistakes we see from a risk profile perspective is that that really people want to uh, become more conservative or more aggressive at the wrong time. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It goes back to that whole emotion thing, right? Fear, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And it's, it's so easy in concept, right? But it's really hard in practice because every bone in your body is telling you I should reduce exposure or every bone in your body is saying I should increase exposure. Um, and, and I would tell you 99% of what we do is manage those emotions, right? It's not sexy. It's not exciting to tell somebody that we want to maintain a discipline approach and rebalance where appropriate. Um, but it's it's what we've seen work time and time and time again. Yeah, no, it's evergreen. It's just literally the, it, bubble. I've studied history and my background. I've got something called psychological analysis, which basically is that exact point. Learn how to make rational, not emotional decisions with your money. So if you go back and study history, bub, every century there's been bubbles and there's been booms and busts. The asset classes change, the, the people change, but the one constant is human nature. Yeah, and and it, it's a. Uh... I, I love that. I love that that background and that perspective. And I would tell you that we talk to clients all the time about, and I and I say this to clients, and I say this. I'm not I'm not trying to be condescending, but it's not my money. And I say that in the fact that I don't have the same emotional tie that you do to it, exactly. and so that allows me to provide advice that you can't necessarily provide yourself. Yeah, and I'm a big believer from an advisor perspective. You know, when we talk about value, we can point to the things that we do from a planning perspective, but but the reality is a significant piece of the advice or the value we provide as advisors is is managing those emotions. Yeah, no, 100%. I definitely smell what you're cooking. So next question I have for you, Eric, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you like to share with the audience? Yeah, so... Um, I think that, you know... One of the things that, that I would say is um, I, I've, I, I'm in a partnership and I have 47 partners and we have 60 advisors and we have a couple, you know, 250 um, folks that are client service administrators, client service managers, our enterprise service team. And, you know, I'm a big believer in collaboration and sharing. And uh, one of the things that I would say that I've learned in, in kind of my my world is you can get a ton of feedback. You can look for a ton of advice um, from a lot of different people, which I think is really important as you make decisions. But you have to, at the end of the day, remember um, who's going to live with those decisions. Right. Um, and I think early on, I and in, in certainly in the leadership role that I, that I have, which I started in 2018, I really and it will continue to always lean on my partners and lean on people that have been down this road before 
But at the end of the day, when the decision needs to be made, I always, you know, I, you have to realize that at some point you're the one who has to, to live with that decision. And so it's important to get all the feedback and get all the thoughts and ideas, but you have to live with the decisions that, that are made on a day-to-day basis. Um, that Some of the people that provide you the advice or thoughts that they have, you know, that's a, a kind of a, a one-off. I ask a question, they provide a, a thought or opinion, and then they don't necessarily have to think about it every day thereafter. Right. So that's just uh, one of those lessons that I've learned, certainly in this role. The other thing I would say is, and this goes back to my days at Anderson, um, in, in watching an institution that I think at the time we were doing something close to $8 billion of revenue. So when you think about that as one of the largest uh, five public accounting firms, um, w- you, can't contr- you can't predict what's going to happen. Right. Uh, you know, the thought that I would go out, come out of college, go get a job offer at one of the most prestigious accounting firms in the country, and two years later be interviewed in my own office by a couple of other own, a couple of other public accounting firms for the job I already have, was eye-opening. Right. right? I could not have predicted that ENY was going to sit in our office in Tyson's Corner and interview interview me for the position I already have. Right. And that's exactly what happened, right? So, um, you know, I say is you can only control what you can control right. and focus on what you can control. And then the other things are going to happen. And, and I think, again, COVID is a perfect example. We went from, you know, all-time highs in the markets to the Fed firing its bazooka, you know, within a couple weeks' time. Or bazookas. Nobody could have predicted that was going to happen. Multiple bazookas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, ETFs, it was pretty, bonds, pretty yeah. remarkable how fast, and right. I actually give them a ton of credit for identifying how quickly they needed to react um, to the situation. But, I mean, when you think about it, it was a couple of weeks. It's pretty remarkable. It really is. Yeah, the world changes on a dime. So um, those are the timeless lessons. Next question I would like to ask. I guess, what are some timeless mistakes you see people make with just in general, and how do you avoid them? Yeah, so I think I think one of the biggest things that we see is just kind of the short-term thinking, okay. right? So when we think about, you know, successful planning and successful plans, when we think about successful businesses, when we think about the Warren Buffetts of the world, you know, what I would tell you is there are always moments where we probably scratch our heads and, and question what they're doing uh, in any given point in time. But then you, you realize that they are incredibly talented and focusing on the long term. And I think one of the things that we see and, and I think are um, I just think the, the way our culture is these days and, and with uh, kind of the media and the speed of information um our, our thinking can be short term. So right. we, we see people want to react um, and maybe have knee jerk reactions to a news cycle, to an election cycle, to an event that happens. And that has and can have significant negative impacts in the long term. And, and that's one of those things that we see um, time and time again is just the reaction to some shorter term events. And, you know, our goal is to avoid the noise, right? We want to avoid, um, you know, people making those decisions, drastic changes to plans because of something that they feel or see or hear. And I think that's all driven by that, that shorter term. Successful investors 
invest for the long term. It's not measured by days or months or you know quarters. It's measured by years and decades. And we all know that. But it's really, again, one of those things that's hard to implement and, um, you know, not not make uh, reactions or have reactions along the way. No. The other thing I think, and, it, and I wouldn't say it's a mistake, um, it's, just, it's just something that we see more of from a planning perspective. And again, I've been doing this now 17 years, so... Uh, one of the most rewarding things that that I've I've experienced is, you know, having clients really put goals on paper and then see them accomplish them. And whether it's college education or that vacation home or retirement, you know, being part of their life as they've accomplished those goals has been incredibly successful or incredibly um, gratifying, I should say. Uh, our clients have put in the hard work uh, to get there. But but one of the things I would say is there's this trend of, um, and again, I'm not framing it as a mistake, but just something we see from a planning perspective, um, one of the biggest impediments to some of our clients' goals has been the supporting of children for a longer period of time. Yeah. And it's it's kind of this unique situation where um, it's taken longer for clients' children to, be, children to become independent. And again, not a mistake. Listen, I have three kids of my own. Um, and I'm hopeful at some point that, you know, they're off on their own and their own careers, but, but there has been this trend where, uh, there's been a longer support period of time than, than initially expected. So it's just, it's been interesting to see. Yeah, no, it's actually on that exact point. One of the funniest moments I had in my version of adulting and, and, you know, transforming, I was a teenager and I had an internship at my first quote unquote boss. And the guy was so happy one day and I looked at him, I said, what's going on? He's like, my kids are finally off my payroll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get it's, it at the uh, time, but now as an adult, yeah. it's really funny. I, I fully, fully get it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll, I'll circle back. The last comment I make here is, you know, again, it's not a mistake. I think it goes, it kind of ties into a lot of the themes, uh, even even back to your risk question, spending. So, so one of the biggest things that we see uh, folks talk about is, you know, spending rates are not necessarily having a good handle on. So we'll sit down, we'll put together a financial action plan. We'll identify that the current spending rate really is not sustainable or doesn't allow you to accomplish the goals that you have. Right. right. And it's not a mistake. It's just a fact where it goes a little bit to control what you can control. So clients will come in and say, well, what's my expected rate of return on this portfolio? How do we manage volatility? All those other things. But at the end of the day, the most impactful thing that they can really think about and do is change their spending habits. And again, it's not a mistake. It's just something that um, we think is really, really important in, in terms of client behavior and identifying that is, in fact, the only thing that we can control going forward. And by the way, it has a significant impact on your ability to accomplish the goals that you have. So um, we're also often uh, approached by people that are that are looking for for help and they don't necessarily know what they spend and so back to my accounting days you know the first step is really to identify you know where it's going where it's you know how much and, and where it's going to, to help you know start that process but it, it's just one of those things where um, we we have to have that conversation uh, from a planning perspective to say, okay, spending is one of the things that you can control and we need to talk about it. Yeah, that's a great point too. I mean, cash flow 101, right? Cash flow in versus cash flow out. It's a simple formula, like calories in versus calories out. 
Yeah, and you know, we have people come to us and and they say, "Well, I know in retirement I'm going to spend 60 or 70%." There's this notion that you don't spend the same amount of money in retirement. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I say, "Okay, well that's a great in theory, but I'm going to tell you, let's say you retire tomorrow, what 30 to 40% of your lifestyle do you cut out?" Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 and I guarantee you can't come up with it. Now, right. your spending pattern may look different, right? You yeah. may be traveling to see kids or grandchildren or whatever the case may be, but it doesn't go down. Yeah. We have yet to see anybody spend materially less in retirement. Yeah, that's a very good point, too, because everyone's living this quote-unquote illusion or delusion or whatever word you want to use that, oh, yeah, things are going to be different when, and then things are just never different. It's just another one of those. It's another one of those days. Yep. So um, I guess next question for you, Eric, what is the best piece of advice you can share with the audience on or off Wall Street? Yeah, so uh, just a, a couple of things here as I, as I thought about this question. This is, uh, I, I, you know, uh, when asked for advice or, or what I think is the best advice, it's always, you know, from my perspective. Um, one of the things that I would say, there's a, there's a book, The World is Flat, yeah. and there's a statement in it there, and it says, good fortune rewards the prepared. Yeah, and so... You know, my theory always was I'm not going to be the smartest person in the room. I know that. But if I'm the most prepared, I feel like I, whatever situation I'm in, um, that puts me a step ahead. And so I, I really try and live by that. And whatever the interaction is, whether it's a firm um, interaction, whether it's a client, my thought is to go in very, very, very prepared and good things happen as a result. Um, from a from a planning perspective, from a leadership perspective, from a family perspective, my next thought is to listen, and and not listen, you know, like we often think of listening, but to really actively listen, to not be mentally preparing my response to what somebody is saying as they're saying it, but to really sit and listen, to to stop thinking about how I'm going to respond to that and really think about what that individual is saying. I think. What my advisor experience has taught me is sitting with clients and understanding that if I truly understand what they're telling me, what they want to accomplish, how they think, if I'm actively listening, then I'm going to be able to provide them ultimately the best advice. But but when I think about that active listening, that goes across all levels of life, whether it's my family and my 10-year-old wants to tell me something um, and I've got a million things on my mind. I need to stop and listen to her and say, okay, what is she, what is she really asking for? Right. I think that is really, really critical, um, in the process and in my advice. And then the final piece is, um, and this isn't rocket science, hire great people and then get out of the way. Yeah. Right. Hire great people. Don't tell them what to do, how to do it. Just hire them. They're great people for a reason. Get out of the way and let them run. And, you know, I think that often, and especially in the accounting world, and, and there's a lot of great accountants out there, but I grew up uh, in, in my career in the first couple of years where I would write a letter. And by the time it went to my senior, and then by the time it went to the manager, and then by the time it went to the senior manager, I'd get it back to finish it. And it was nothing that I had written. And I felt a little bit like, well, if you hired me to do something, but then you're ultimately just going to do it anyway, why am I here? Right. And so... You know, well, I've learned that if you hire really good people, people that are more talented than you are, and then get out of their way, that great things happen. It's such a good point. I live my life with that motto as well. All the points you brought up, it's really fantastic. 
So, um, Eric, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Anything that you want to add that I didn't ask? No, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think I really, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and, uh, I don't know that anything I shared was, was life changing or something that, you know, people haven't heard before, but, um, you know, I think I've, I've, uh, really had a ton of fun in this career and working with so many different families, seeing so many different things. And I think from a professional perspective, when I think back of those 17 years and now, you know, 20, 20 plus years and in, in when you count in my accounting days, it just, there's so many things that you cannot predict. And, you know, coming into the work world as a, as a 21 year old, really thinking like I can control so much and, and really drive the ship you're humbled pretty quickly by realizing that there's only so many things you can really control. Oh yeah. It's such a, it's such a powerful, timeless life. I mean, that's kind of the, the underlying subtext of this whole show is just to get that timeless information out there. So the former 21 year old or the next 21 year old or future, future generations can learn from it because there's no point in reinventing the wheel. You did share a lot of really good insight and I really appreciate it. Well, thanks Adam. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks Eric. Talk to you soon. 